Well, good morning again. Thank you guys for for being here. Um, it seems like these Sundays come fast, and then and then they uh, when you get here, and it seems like it's been forever since we've talked about this. So, I just want to kind of remind us where we're at. We we're trying to work through the last couple of weeks. Um, come with the preliminary material, some of the some of the key concepts, um, key features of the text, some of the key concepts that we need to have in mind before we actually start studying um, the Ten Commandments per se. Um, some of these things that are they're just kind of necessary information, things that we need to, to have a better um, perspective on the text as a whole. So today is going to be another one of those days. Uh, next week, having gone through those concepts and some of those um, issues, I just want to I want to look at the context uh, in the in, in what we call the his, the redemptive historical context. I want to look at the hist- I want to look at the Pentateuch as a whole and how the Ten Commandments fits in there. Uh, instead of just giving you a bunch of key points on a page, you could read through the material that's left in that. I'll show you in the first packet. I'm going, to just go, I'm going to go through a series of texts. I'm just going to read through and I'm going to be pointing out things. And these are the things, the things that I'll point out will be things that we've brought up in this other material. So that you can see the things that we've been talking about in, for the last couple of three weeks. You can see them in the biblical text. And then, hopefully, you'll be able to go back on your own and work through the whole Pentateuch. You can just flip pages and you're going to see these key texts coming up. They're going to be key texts surrounding the covenants. Uh, they're going to be key, and when we see the covenants, we see the law, and you're going to see all of these uh, certain words, key phrases, key um, key ways that the writers consistently are presenting the law in the context of covenant. And I think you're going to see how it all fits together, the whole narrative, and it gives you this, the perspective. What we're going to call, I'll call a Deuteronomy 32 worldview. We'll get to that, but it gives you the perspective. I think a healthier perspective on the law as a whole and the way that the Ten Commandments uh, particularly fits into that. And um, so just for, you know, to kind of get us up to speed with where we're at, where we're going, that's kind of the plan. So next week, um, uh, I'll, bring, I'll bring the text so you can actually follow along. You don't have to flip the pages because I'm going to go fast. Um, you can bring a highlighter if you want. That might be great. Um, but it, it's, I think it will be good um, just to go through the text itself and to see, uh, see where these are, and hopefully you can go and find them for yourselves. Uh, this week, in particular, um, we're going to start off with a canonical context. And the first thing is to say, in the, in the Old Testament, in the, in the Old Testament, where do we see the Ten Commandments? We see them in two principal places, Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5. In Exodus 20, um, uh, we see um, God is giving the commandments uh, to Israel at Sinai. And in uh, Deuteronomy 5, Moses is re-giving the Ten Commandments uh, on the plains of Moab to Israel. He's reminding them uh, both of what we'll say, the context and the content of the initial giving of the Ten Commandments. Um, So... uh, one of the first things that you're going to find out is, are there, or you're going to ask, people ask, are there differences between the two accounts? Yes. 
There are, but they're not very significant. Uh, one of the first things <coughs> that you'll notice is uh, in ex in between the two accounts uh, is a difference in the uh, name used for Mount Sinai. In the Exodus 20 account, it's Mount Sinai. In Deuteronomy 5, it is Mount Horeb, or Horeb. Uh, Horeb being a name more generally for the area, okay, in which Mount Sinai itself is located. Uh, apart from that, probably one of the biggest uh, distinctions between the two is uh, the reason or the purpose that we're giving for adherence to the Sabbath. So in Exodus 20, um, we hear, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Uh, there's some elaboration, and then in verse 11 it says, For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So the context for the purpose uh, for uh, keeping the Sabbath is in light of reflection upon creation itself and God's rest after the first six days. So in this context... Basically, it's yielding to the authority of God as creator, right? But in Deuteronomy, we see, observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. We see an elaboration, then you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Here, what is the context? Redeemer, redemption. Those are the two, and I think you'll find this throughout, <laughs> throughout the Old Testament, two primary categories in which God presents himself as both creator and redeemer. What is the authority by which he can um, dictate the terms of any covenant arrangement to humanity? In the garden... At creation is because he is the creator he's all-powerful he is he is the creator God he has a second claim upon those that he redeems he is not only creator he is also redeemer and in a sense recreator so he has a different claim and so here you, you can you kind of get a sense um, some commentators some commentators um, uh, reflect a little bit on that but I thought it was interesting when you look at kind of what's behind the distinction between those two accounts. And secondly, notice that um, that they're going to be consistent. You're going to see this next week when we go through the text. You're going to see these themes consistently pop up again. The authority of God as creator, the authority of God as redeemer. Uh, when you see the covenant structure kind of unfold a little bit. Any questions so far? Okay. Uh, I'm, I just turned to page seven. Yeah, I think Exodus 20. Mine's a little bit different because I've made some changes along the way. You know how it is? So let's just talk about the first one real quick, Exodus 20. Why, did, why not just put all the laws together and keep the mountain theophany narrative together? I never saw this before. I thought it was interesting. But if you open your Bibles and you look to Exodus uh, 19, uh, in verse 19... Up until you get to the actual giving of the Ten Commandments, okay, in 20. 
we had, and if you look at the, on the back side of the giving of the Ten Commandments, verses tw chapter 20 through 18, the Ten Commandments is actually put in the middle of that. You could actually, I'm just going to read it. It's one theophany. It's one, um, it's one narrative event, right? It's one historical event. God's appearing to them on the mountain. So if I'm, I'm going to start here in chapter 19. Um, in verse 21, right before the giving of the Ten Commandments. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through the Lord, to look and, many, look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, let the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Sinai, to Mount Sinai, for you yourself have warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them, dot, dot, dot. Then we go straight into the Ten Commandments. And when we come out of the Ten Commandments, in verse 18 of chapter 20, now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood afar off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. You could take the Ten Commandments out. It's all part of the same story. Why put it here and not on the backside of this theophany with all the other laws that come after it? And I didn't know. Uh... I saw several commentators talked about it. The author, this is one of the things I talked about, structure and parting meaning. The author has purposefully, it's like a Moses sandwich, a mosaic sandwich. He has taken the Ten Commandments per se, and he has stuffed it between the two halves of this event where God himself descends, his presence is there, and he speaks. He's letting you know this event, this giving of the law took place in this moment. So there's no question. It didn't come before, and he didn't list them before. He didn't list them after. It happened right here at this place and time, and it's significant because this is God. He's reemphasizing the fact that this is the very word of God. He visited his people, and he spoke directly to them, and that's what the author is trying to do here. Then, so you see the narrative pick back up. Then we get into all of the other laws that we'll talk about. Does that make sense? I thought that was really interesting, and I thought several commentators uh, spoke well about that. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, and another thing, I just want to point this out. I don't know if I've said it before, but you're going to see, see people say Ten Commandments. We've talked about the Ten Words. The word Decalogue, it just means it's Deca and Logoi. It's Ten Words. Decalogue, Ten Words. Um, so they're going to use it interchangeably in here, and so will I. Let's talk about Exodus 34. Um, so we, if, just thinking back, big historical events. We've got the giving of the law in, 20, in uh, Exodus 20. In 32, uh, the golden calf. Moses is going to break the tablets. We need some new ones, right? In 34, um, we get that. The problem, or I say problem, the interesting thing is, is that the, the giving of the, the listing of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 34 is not the same as what we see in um, Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy 5. Um, so in Exodus 34, 
we, we seem to get the, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments given again. When Moses discovers that they've been worshiping a golden calf in his absence, he angrily breaks the tablets. Then he ascends Sinai again, where God gives him a, a set of replacement tablets. Um, though, God says, uh, though Exodus 34 says that God wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments, the commandments given in Exodus 34 are clearly different. Um, the prohibition for idols or against idols and the call for Sabbath rest do appear in 34. But the rest of the, of the, of the, of the laws are stipulations that relate to like religious festivals and sacrifices. Commentators address this. They say, you have to understand, the context of the uh, golden calf incident, the context is driving the conversation here. Most of these differences, and the reason that some of these things are put here, um, are to emphasize things that, are, that have occurred in the immediate context. Okay, so it's not like we're making this big declarative statement, these are the laws. That's already happened, and the authors made that clear. What we see here is a, a re-giving, how we got the law re-given to them uh, after the first set of tablets, and then it is contextualized. We're going to see it contextualized differently in Deuteronomy 5, when Moses, because Deuteronomy is more like a, ser a series of sermons or speeches that Moses is giving to Israel at the end of his um, leadership. But that's one of the primary reasons why we see those differences. But it's worth looking at and comparing them. Uh, then De Deuteronomy 5 itself, um, uh, where we look at the form and context, it, it does have a sermonic quality to it. Okay, There's a little bit of difference in the style between the two. Um, and, and quickly, I want to talk about uh, Old Testament texts and allusions uh, or quotes. The Old Testament authors really don't uh, quote the precepts of the Ten Commandments very often. They're not quoting it. They allude to it. There's some echoes of it uh, in a few key texts, but it's not, uh, it's like pervasive on a kind of low-key level. It's a little bit more pronounced in the New Testament uh, with New Testament writers. Um, but I think one of the things that was really you know, surprising to me um, and I handed out a sheet of paper. If you have that, you might just look at that real quick. <clears throat> in Jewish tradition, they talk about there being 613 laws in the Pentateuch. But they would call this the 613 mitzvot commands. Um, but those 613 can be summarized by the Ten Commandments. And then they can be summarized by the two, right? We think of Deuteronomy 6 with the Shema. And then we think about uh, in the New Testament in Matthew how Jesus... Uh, um, summarizes the law. And um, the handout that I gave you today <clears throat> shows those two texts in Deuteronomy 6 5. Um, this is the, the beginning of the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And then in Matthew 22 36 through 40 teacher, which is the great, uh, the great commandment in the law. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So here you see the two tables of the law we've talked about. We talked about the first, the, the first four uh, directing uh, toward God and the other six towards man. You see a vertical component in the Deuteronomy 5 or the Deuteronomy 6 text 
and you see emphasis upon both the vertical and the horizontal with the quote with Jesus's words so um, one of the things that I thought was interesting too uh, at the very bottom of the page you'll see the Babylonian Talmud a little header this is a quote from a famous rabbi it's in the Babylonian Talmud um, and I'm just going to read it real quick. 613 commandments were given to Moses. David came and reduced them to 11. Read Psalm 15. And I, and I encourage you, if you want to go back and read these texts and see how they're, you, how they're looking at the law. This is how they see the law in some ways spread throughout the text. Uh, Isaiah came and reduced them to six. Micah came and reduced them to three. Isaiah again came and reduced them to two. Amos came and reduced them to a single one. Objected Rabbi Naaman bar Isaac. Maybe the sense is, seek me through the whole of the Torah. So they're, 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 they're trying to say, what is the essence of all of the law? And this, uh, uh, this rabbi kind of responds to the other. And, but rather, Sim, Rabbi Simlai rather continues, Habakkuk further came and based him on one, as it is said, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Habakkuk 2.4. And I actually did a study on Habakkuk 2.4 because it is a hugely important text in some key New Testament texts that talk about uh, faith. And uh, unsurprisingly, it's really highly uh, technical and it's debated and there's all kinds of opinions about it. But if you just look up at the top, I want to point two places where Paul himself quotes it and the verses are going to be familiar Romans 1.17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to sal- for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, here's the quote, the righteous shall live by faith. Habakkuk 2.4. And you'll notice in the ESV in particular, there's two footnotes, A and B. There are two senses in which this statement can be viewed typically. Is it um, the beginning and ending in faith? It's like you're describing the whole life of, from beginning to end in faith. And or is it the one who by faith is righteous shall live? There's ambiguity in the Hebrew text, the way it's written, but it's purposeful. That's my argument. Um, it's purposeful and it's there to show the complexity of it. It's still clear. And you look in Galatians, uh, Paul again. Now it is evident that no one is justified before, before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. There, interestingly, they only put one uh, option for the ter- interpretation. But that, 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 just that one text is key. You see the law used in different ways. It's going to be interesting how the New Testament, Old Testament writers uh, uh, use the law. And you can go back and look at some of the examples that I've given there. I think some of those could be helpful. Um, Any questions with that material? What do we, uh, what is, like, we talk about Ten Commandments, and but there's, it keeps going. Like, after those Ten Commandments, God keeps going into other laws.
Yeah, and we're going to talk about some of that coming up. That's a great question. It's, uh, we're basically talking about the covenant code, uh, it, it's, uh, or the book of the covenant. And what the, what the, the Ten Commandments are going to be the foundation Okay, and then the other laws, we say the other, according to the, the Jews, it would have been the other 603 laws that we haven't got to, if they, if they counted 613 in the Pentateuch. The other 603 are various forms and types, and we're going to make some of those distinctions right now. Between, between them, the ways that we can dis- distinguish between them, kind of classify them, if you, if you say, and uh, you could say, and, um, and where we find them, how they're arranged, that kind of thing. Um, is that helpful? I'm, I'm going I'm to go into it in more detail here. Um, so when we look at the literary, I'm going to look at the key hermeneutical concepts. Um, uh, real quick, uh, on the form and style, um, there's about four different ways that we can make distinctions between the types of laws that we see in the Old Testament. Uh, the traditional Reformed way is moral law, civil law, ceremonial law. Um, the moral law, we would say that's basically the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words. The civil law, the covenant code, um, the, the civil law is largely civil law. Uh, it follows the Ten Commandments, the giving of the moral law. Um, the moral precepts, the Ten Commandments are fundamental and foundational. And then what you're going to see is that the other laws are derivative of those, of those primary ten. Uh, and then we have ceremonial laws, laws that are primarily... Uh, concerning ceremonial aspects like the sacrificial system, food laws, uh, laws related to cleanness, uncleanness, things like that. Um, now, this dis- that, that distinction is very helpful, but it can be com- confusing or misleading sometimes because sometimes it's, they're, not, they're distinct, but they're not inseparable, meaning that it can have a little bit of both. It can be a little bit ceremonial and a little bit moral. It can be a little bit of, you know, a civil and a little bit ceremonial. So you have to be careful. It's a, it's a helpful way to make a distinct to distinguish between them, but it's not absolute. And so you have to be careful when you do that. Another way is by looking at the uses or functions of the law. So we talk about first use, second use, third use of the law. First use of the law is uh, like the civil law teaches us about righteousness and justice. Uh, it's a safeguard for human behavior in society, right? That's the first use. Um, the second use, Luther's favorite, um, he emphasized a lot, is it, it's a tutor to lead us to Christ and to show us our need of a mediator. Okay? And then the third use, you can read in there, is it is a guide for the believer. It's a guide for us in the Christian life. And just like before with civil, ceremonial, and moral, first, second, third use can be blended at times, right? It can be both. Um, so it's a helpful distinction, but it's not absolute. Another way is to look at what we call two basic kinds of law. Um, I don't have time to go through it in detail today. It's pretty self-explanatory in the notes, but there's basically two types or kinds. Uh, Albrecht Ott, Ott, uh, Alt, he was a, a theologian back in the early 30s, uh, basically made this distinction, is that we have apodictic and casuistic and those terms in and of themselves don't mean as much as the concept. The concept is this. When you have the, the Ten Commandments are apodictic law. Thou shalt, thou shalt not, right? Um, the casuistic, think case law. Casuistic is like if 
then. If, then, therefore, right? So in a sense, you see the moral law in the Ten Commandments is also um, apodictic. It's thou shalt do this, thou shalt not do that. It's building a fence. It is setting a concrete anchor. And then you see, you see from that derivative casuistic law where it's case law where we're seeing, okay, this, then that. If this, then that. Therefore. Because of this, therefore. Um, and then <clears throat> I want to hit real quick on the Hitterite suzerain vassal treaty form. This has uh, uh, been a huge thing since the 1950s with Mendenhall and Klein and others. But basically, they went back and they evaluated Hitt ancient Near Eastern Hittite uh, treaties, okay, between uh, that were common at the time that they believe that uh, during the Mosaic period, that time of the ancient Near East. And uh, interestingly enough, the people in Israel or in Egypt at the time, Israel, while they were in Egypt during that period of time, would have been familiar with the Hittite treaty form. So you're talking about a people that's been in bondage in slavery in Egypt for 400 years, right? Uh, so they would have a general idea about this type of structural arrangement. It's a, it's a common treaty form. It'd be like a typical you know, introductory letter here or a resume. We kind of know the form. Um, and they basically d determined, there's a series of them here, but you're going to see the, the way that these uh, covenant treaties work is they break them into pre the preamble. And if you apply this to the Ten Commandments, here's what you get, the preamble. I am, your, I am Yahweh, your God. The historical prologue, who brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. The stipulations of the covenant, the commandments themselves. And then if you read on in the narrative after the specific giving of the accounts in both Exodus and Deuteronomy, you're going to see things like the deposition in the reading. The tablets were to be placed in the ark, right? And they were read to the people regularly. And then we have witnesses. Then there are blessings and curses given. And we see that specifically in Deuteronomy. And then you have ratification, a ceremony where they ratify it. All of these things are present in the biblical text in the larger context beyond just the direct giving of the Ten Commandments. In fact, most commentators believe, I'd say the majority of believe now, that the entire book of Deuteronomy, second giving of the law, the entire book of Deuteronomy is written in this structural format. So um, understanding that this is going on, I'm just going to read a summary and we'll close it down, but uh, if you interpret the Ten Commandments in this way, the de the t it represents an agreement between a superior party, God, and a subordinate party, Israel, in return for past deliverance and future provision, undivided loyalty in all matters is expected of Israel. The suzerainty covenants of the political realm, like them, this covenant also hinges on the condition, Israel's observance of the stipulations. And this is, I thought this was interesting, it's kind of, Tough statement, but interesting. Whether one understands response as one of obligation or gratitude is irrelevant at this point. Failure to keep the stipulation would lead to breach of the covenant, and breach of the covenant would invoke the covenant curses and ensure the demise of the vassal party. I would just say this. If this is, if this is truly the paradigm or the format that, they, that, that Moses was using when he authored or when he structured the writing of the Ten Commandments, the suzerain is all-powerful and dictated the terms of the covenant, okay? The vassal, it wasn't a choice. It was a reality. And so 
when we look at all these things and we, uh, you know, and, and I, like I mentioned early on, God's authority. In the Garden of Eden, we have, a, we have an Edenic covenant. And we have law, as we're going to see next week. And his authority is based upon the idea that he is creator. And in here, he immediately lets them know who he is, identity, and the basis of his authority. Not only is he the creator God, but he is the one who's redeemed them. He has two claims as the sovereign, and he is going to institute the terms and the conditions of the covenant. And um, anyway, uh, I think that's all the time we had today. Uh, if you'll remember, I have one of those colorful sheets over here. In fact, if you look down here at Deuteronomy, you're going to see how some authors have broken the book down into an ancient Near Eastern covenantal structure and how it also coincides with other ways of breaking it down, dividing the text. But next week, um, next week, I'm going to have uh, sheets with all the texts, and my, my plan is just to kind of rapid fire work through the text and point out all of these different things. I think they're going to jump off the page, and when we're done, you're going to look at, the, hopefully you're going to look at the, uh, the prologue uh, to the Ten Commandments, and, and it's going to jump off the page what's being said. There's a lot being said there in a short frame. But any questions? All right, we'll close some prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for um, the privilege that we have uh, to study your word and to study it together in your house with your people. And we just pray that, um, that you would write the eternal truths of your word upon all of our hearts. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.